0: following message from pastor kit johnson comes to you from life point baptist church in apple valley california where we pray that god's word is a real blessing to you colossians 3 today i don't typically do a valentine's day sermon per se but figured it worked out well this year valentine's day is sunday and we just finished uh, Second Peter chapter three last week, and and so I thought it'd be good to uh, to pause today and and just think about biblical love. Biblical love is a great great theme to think about, and I specifically want to focus today on on one very important aspect of biblical love uh, that I think is sorely lacking in our society, and, and it's something that is contrary to our flesh, and so I think it's a it's a good a theme to think about, and, and specifically, the Bible teaches that biblical love is not harsh or biting. No, instead, biblical love is full of grace, mercy, and compassion. And and so today we want to focus on that, and and it's important because if you want to have a fruitful marriage, you want to have a healthy home, you want to have good relationships in general, you must, among other things, be characterized by the compassion of, of Christ. We need to be compassionate people. My favorite uh, passage on this particular subject is Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. And, and it does repeat some of the same ideas uh, that we just read in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, so notice what it says here Colossians 3, verse 12. It says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Now, it does need to be said that when Paul wrote these words, he was particularly thinking of life in the church. The, The context here... Of of the beginning of 1 Corinthians 3 is or Colossians 3 is very much centered around the church. But but what Paul has to say here has a lot of significance for marriage, family, and every kind of relationship. And I'm sure that there is at least one thing in this passage that all of us need to develop more strongly. So, so my outline today is built on three major truths in this passage. And the first truth is, is that God has called us to a higher standard. God has called us to a higher standard. Now I'm glad uh, that, that the passage begins with, with this high standard because many of the qualities that we're going to see, particularly in verses twelve and thirteen, are, are things that are not normal. And our society it is not made up or is not marked by mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, is it? No, we tend to be very sharp and, and very biting. And, and as well, uh, these are things that are difficult to pull off. I mean, you may look at some of the things that we're going to talk about today, and, and you think about a particular individual, and you think, God wants me to be patient with this guy? That can't happen. And, and, so, and so, notice though, that, that despite those excuses we might have, Paul frames his challenge in these verses with the fact that we are the elect of God, holy and beloved. And those three descriptions do a couple of things for us. First of all, they give us tremendous hope that we can do what God is calling us to do. And secondly, they also add great weight to God's demands. These are not things that are great to do if you get around to it. These are things that are required of the people of God. And and the background to these three terms uh, is God's relationship to Israel. So so keep your finger here, uh, but turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7, because I think uh, this passage gives us uh, a good foundation, a good framework uh, with which to understand what Paul is trying to say. So Deuteronomy chapter 7, and uh, God is, or excuse me, well, Moses is speaking to Israel just before they enter the promised land. And Moses says to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, he says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples." but because the Lord loves you and because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, so this text tells us, first of all, that God chose Israel. Of course, our text says that we are the elect of God. But, but neither of these choices are because of anything in us. Right? I mean, Moses says to Israel, God chose you despite the fact that you were the fewest of all people. There was nothing lovely about Israel. Nothing about them that that pulled God towards them. No, God loved them out of sheer love and mercy. And of course, it's the same for us. When I'm not a Christian today, I'm not loved by God today because I'm so wonderful and so precious and God couldn't do anything but love me. No, he loves me because he is full of love and he is full of grace. So if you are a Christian, God has given you an amazing gift. You have received an incredible love from our God, a love that is full of grace and kindness. And as well here in Deuteronomy 7, uh, uh, Moses calls Israel, uh, there in verse 6, a holy people to the Lord your God. Now, now when when the Old Testament speaks of Israel as holy, it's not typically meaning that they were righteous in their character, right? Because Israel was very rarely a righteous people. They were wicked much more than they were righteous. no. when when he speaks here of them being a holy people to the Lord, the idea is generally that they have been set apart to God as his special possession. Of course, uh, that's our focus this year with our theme devoted to God, that we have been set apart as God's special people. And so so he's saying here that that we belong to God. We are not members of this world. We are His. And and then the third description uh, that comes up in our passage and that's reflected here is is God's love. So so verse 7 says there that Moses says, the Lord did not set His love on you, or choose you because you were more in number than any other people. instead, verse 8 says that that all these graces have been given to you because the Lord loves you. God loves His people. And again, I think it's important to recognize that the focus is on God's initiative. Now, God's love is, is not based on anything lovely in us, but based on His goodness and His kindness. So if you're a Christian today, I think it's important that we, we ponder again the fact that we have been blessed with wonderful mercy and grace. We are the elect of God, His holy and beloved people. And, and Paul frames our text with this fact for, for several reasons. I think first of all, because it adds serious weight to the challenge that's coming in, in, in the remainder of the passage. Because throughout Deuteronomy, whenever Moses brings up these ideas that Israel belongs to God, that they are set apart to Him, it's usually in the context of a call to obedience and holiness. You know, that you are God's special people, so you need to act like it. And I think as well, it's significant that Paul frames his challenge with these facts because you know, considering the grace that I have received, considering the love that that God has bestowed on me, how could I not extend that grace and kindness and love to others? In fact, it's a real problem. If I have been beloved by God when I deserve nothing at all, and I turn around and I am unwilling to show that same grace and kindness to others. And so, Christian, as we go forward in this text, remember that the qualities of verses 12 and 13 are the non-negotiable requirements of your new life in Christ. You, you cannot just say, well, I don't want to do this. No, God is saying that if you are in Christ, this is required. And, and I think it's also worth adding that, that these three descriptions tell us that we can do these things. That they are in reach. So, so notice, uh, that, that but there in verse 12, back in Colossians 3, that Paul says, therefore, as the elect of God holy and beloved, and then he gives the, the, the command. He says, put on, and then he goes on to say tender mercies, kindness, and, and so forth. And that verb put on it is very important in the context. So, so if you look back up at verse 8, verse 8 says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, uh, probably the idea there is slander, and filthy language. So, so, so we are to put off the things that are contrary to our passage, and then, we, but, but, thankfully, we can do that because notice what he says in verse nine. He says, "Do not lie to one another." Why? Since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge, uh, renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So, in other words, if you are in Christ. God has already changed your heart. You are a new creature in Him. And therefore, when verse 12 commands us to put on these five positive virtues, He's not calling us to embark on some impossible climb that you can never attain to. No. God is just simply telling you to put into practice the transforming work that God has already done in your life. So so therefore, as we work our way through this list, I want to urge you, don't at some point get forlorn. Woe is me. I could never do that. And don't cross your arms and say, yeah, God may say I have to do that, but there is no way I'm going to extend this kind of grace to that person in particular. Now, now yes, it's true. Yes, that that God is sympathetic to, to the fact that people hurt you People are are sometimes ornery and and do terrible things. But he doesn't give us any exceptions. He says, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, you must go after the things that he is about to describe. And and thankfully, we can do so confidently, knowing that God will give us the grace to live this out. So, So with that in mind, the second major truth in this passage is that we must extend grace to each other. We must extend grace to each other. So, so notice there in verse 12, he again, he commands us to put on five qualities. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. So the first quality there is tender mercies. And, and the King James uh, actually has here bowels of mercy, which is a really strange phrase to us. We don't typically talk that way, but, but the reason... Uh, the reason they use uses the word bowels in the Greek there is because the Greeks believed that our emotions are seated inside our bowels. So we tend to say our heart, uh, but they thought of it as residing in your bowels, and that's kind of weird to us, but, but it also sort of makes sense. I, I remember a couple of years ago, one of my boys was, was really upset about something, and afterwards he was trying to describe his emotion to us, and, and he said to us, my tummy was sad. And what he was saying was that he felt this intense feeling down in his gut of sadness. And so, and so there's a sense in which you know we feel emotions way down deep at times. So so God's point here by saying bowels of mercy is that God is, is, is not even here just calling us to practice mercy, you know, to pretend like we care about people. No is telling us that we need to become merciful people down to the very core of our being. And then it has to, of course, translate into how we live and how we respond to other people. And nowhere should that be more evident than in your own home, right? No one should feel the mercy and compassion of our hearts more than the people to whom we are closest. But, of course, sadly, oftentimes the opposite is true. Now, so often our families have to endure the worst versions of us, and they walk on eggshells, afraid to set us off because they know that sometimes the smallest thing will set us into rage. Maybe they know us more for anger than they do for the mercy of God, and they've watched us over and over blow up over the smallest of things. You know, so often you see married couples that have been married for a long time, and and and, and there's just this, this bickering and there's this biting and, and, and harsh sarcasm that 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 manifests itself in everything they say to each other. And those things are very common. But but folks, verse eight commands us to put off anger, wrath, and malice. And, and verse 12 commands us to put on tender mercies. So so if you're married, you need to love your spouse and all of us need to love our families down deep in our hearts. And so by God's grace, develop a heart of compassion and generosity so so that your instinctual response to others is not to guard your turf and to get frustrated when, when they make your life difficult, but instead to be kind, compassionate, and generous. And then the second quality that he mentions here is that we are to put on kindness. Now, our problem with kindness is not that we don't know what it is or that God requires it. That's a pretty basic biblical value. No, our problem is is that even after God has demonstrated incredible kindness to us, so often we are still selfish, impatient, and sometimes even malicious. But it is vital that we learn to demonstrate the same kindness that we have received. That that we are people that are caring and giving. And and so, it's such a simple concept. But but if we can just learn to be kind, it has tremendous potential to, to transform our relationships. And then the third thing we're to put on is humility. And I thought it was interesting when I studied through this passage to learn uh, that this Greek term that's used here for humility, we have no instances in secular Greek where this term is used positively. The Greeks always looked at it as a negative idea, and that's because uh, they believed that, that to be humble was to be weak and cowardly. But of course, the Bible teaches the exact opposite, that one of the most outstanding qualities of our Savior was that He was humble. He came not to be served, but to serve. And, and, and so in everything that he did, he had the heart of a servant. So, so I want to urge you, you know, don't spend your days dwelling on everything that is great about you. you know, my, my, my family ought to be so thankful for all I do for them. They ought to be so thankful that I do this and I cook meals and I get up early and I drive here and I drive there and, and I put up with this and I put up with that. Don't live your life that way. No, instead, embrace the humility of Christ and and, and view it as a privilege to serve, not to be served. And then the fourth quality that we're to put on is meekness. And meekness is another quality that the world tends to ignore. And and, and what meekness means is simply it's it's a humble spirit that is reflected in a gentle manner. I like how Paul describes meekness in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. He says, Now I, Paul myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. Now I like that because when we think of Paul, Paul was not a weak leader, was he? There was nothing cowardly about him. I mean, he could be very strong, very direct, and when things needed to be said, He said them. He got things done. But but at the same time, Paul wasn't someone who strutted around with his chest out, demanding that, you know, I'm an apostle. Or or using his intellect, or or using his his personality to intimidate people. You know, he didn't go around manipulating people's emotions and, and, and trying to guilt trip them into doing what he wanted. No. He spoke the truth. He stood firmly for the truth and then he trusted the Lord to do what the Lord alone can do. And again, meekness is such an important aspect of love. So so men, I'd say to you that that, that God did not make you stronger than your wife to, to bully her around, to intimidate her, to push her into doing what you want. No, He made you stronger to serve her and to care for her. And to all of us, you know, some of you have strong personalities. You have got charisma and, or maybe a very sharp mind. And God didn't give you those things so that you could weasel around people and, and push them into doing what you want and manipulating people into giving you your way. Be very careful if God has gifted you with those sorts of strengths that you use them to serve and to care. Be gentle like your Savior. And then the fifth quality that, that Paul mentions here in verse 12 is that we are to put on long-suffering. I love that word because it's such a descriptive word, right? So, so, so the reality is, is that relationships always involve suffering because relationships are always with sinners, right? So, so there's going to be suffering in every relationship. So, so to be patient means... That that, that rather than running from that suffering or putting a timer on that suffering, that we instead suffer long. To be long-suffering means that you patiently and humbly absorb other people's faults and continue to love and care even when it is costly. Love suffers long. And then, in verse 13, Paul expands on ways in which we practice long suffering and, and really all five of these qualities. So he says in verse 13 that, that, that we must bear with one another." Now now, for those of you who are married or have been married, just think back to the days before you got married. You know and, and before you got married, you, you thought you had a good sense of what it was going to be like, right so So you thought you knew this person you were about to marry pretty well and and you had a good idea of what it was going to be like to be married to them. And then you got married and you came to know your spouse in an entirely different way. And, And most of that was positive, of course, you know, most of it was very good and you found out wonderful, glorious things about your spouse. But you also learned about some quirks that you didn't realize were there before You learned about some character flaws that you didn't realize were there before. You know, for example, I mean, before I got married, I didn't know that Heidi was going to store her hair straightener in my sink. You know? I didn't expect that. And she didn't realize that I would get irritated about such stupid, silly things. I mean, you get to know each other when you get married in in a whole new way. And uh, my wife loves me, and she can be patient with me, but she's... She's patient with me all the time. But the reality is, is that any time you get close to someone, you see more and more of their faults. You see more and more of their weaknesses. And, And sometimes those are just funny little quirks. You know? But sometimes the faults of other people are very costly. You know, maybe your spouse has a mental disorder or borders on something like that. And it makes life difficult. Maybe your spouse has some particular sin issue that they really struggle to overcome. And it could be anything from something like substance abuse to just the fact that they're lazy and they don't get stuff accomplished. And oftentimes it hangs like a dark fog over the, over the spirit of your home. Just robbing things of the joy and the simplicity that, that you wish was there. And maybe there's someone that you love that has a life-altering health problem. And it really complicates life. And, and it keeps you from doing all the things that, that you thought you would be doing at this stage of life. You've, you've lost a lot of freedom because of that. And maybe you find yourself frequently thinking, this is not what I signed up for. I got married and I had kids so, so that I could be happy. And enjoy myself. I didn't sign myself up for this hardship. So so what do you do with that? Well, well, God says in verse 13 that genuine love bears with one another. It doesn't retreat from the struggles of those that we love. It runs towards them with compassion and care. And, And it doesn't set a timer. For how long I will stay. I will bear with you for this for two years. And if it's not over, I'm gone. No. Love bears with the loved one as long as is necessary. Now now maybe you hear all that and you think, yeah, well what about me? I mean, this is hard. Well, Well, first of all, and I recognize that for some people it really is hard. But first of all, I just urge you to remember that that you have your own problems and that life with you is not as grand as as you might like to think that it is. And and it would probably, you know, and and if you sit around and and again, you spend all your time meditating on all that you sacrifice to be married to this person or all that you give up to to serve your kids or all that you put up with taking care of your older parents, then I just urge you to spend more time thinking about the cost of, of being with you and less time thinking about the cost that you give in serving someone else. And, and then from there, you know, rather than keeping score, keeping tabs of how much I sacrifice compared to how much he sacrifices, focus on leaning on each other through your weakness. And, and then as well, if you find yourself in a difficult spot, uh, I'd urge you just to embrace the difficult portions of God's will. Just embrace it. Again, I feel for people who who are stuck in in extremely difficult marriages. I mean, my my marriage is a joy. It's a joy. Some people, it's not that easy. And and I feel for those people, but, but I would just urge you to remember that relationships, including marriage, are not fundamentally for your happiness. You don't get married fundamentally to be happy. I really like um, uh, in Gary, Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Marriage, his subtitle is this question. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? That's a great question. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? And the answer is, that's why He designed marriage. And, 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 that's, that's, and that's so contrary to how we think as a culture, Right? I mean, we think that love and romance and marriage is all about making me happy and fulfilled. But, but God's fundamental goal in everything is to produce holiness and godliness. And the scriptures teach that holiness and godliness and rest in the Lord will satisfy your heart in a way that no person ever can dream of doing. So so, so reevaluate your goals and your values. And then third, if you find yourself in a difficult spot, I'd say to, to trust the Lord that he is more than sufficient to carry you through whatever hardship he has called you to endure. He is sufficient. And and yes, you might look at that and think, man, I I don't know if I can take this for another five decades or three decades or whatever. Well, God is faithful. God is good. And you can trust him. So, so bear with one another. And, And then, a closely related to that is the next action he says in the remainder of verse 13. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So, so Paul here mentions a scenario that we've all faced many times, right? So, so we have a complaint against someone because they sinned against us. And it hurts, And so often when people hurt us, we we hold on to pain and our hearts, instead of forgiving, we we begin to burn with bitterness and anger. And and when bitterness begins to creep into your heart, it has incredible destructive power. It completely reshapes our perspective, how we view this other individual. And, And so what happens so often is then it begins to translate into, again, subtle jabs Biting language, harsh sarcasm, and on and on down the list. And what's even worse in the context of marriage and, and other relationships too is that oftentimes we, we just become calloused. This person's not going to hurt me. I'm just going to ignore them. I'm not going to let them really get into my heart at all. I'm just going to exist. We're certainly not going to pursue Reconciliation. And so we think, I mean, he's the problem, not me. So if he wants to come to me and get things right, he can, but I'm not moving an inch. I'm sitting here, I'm not going anywhere. But notice the standard of forgiveness that we are to pursue. He says that even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So God says that we are to extend the same forgiveness to others that we have received from Christ. So if you're holding on to some hurt today, I mean, just ask yourself, did this person hurt me to the extent that I have sinned against Christ? I can promise you that no matter how much someone may have hurt you, you have sinned against Christ infinitely more. And, and so... So no matter what that person has done, God is calling you to forgive. Now, now of course I'm not saying here that there aren't consequences to sin. You know, sometimes uh, when people sin against us, there is a breach of trust that that, that just simply cannot be repaired, at least not quickly. And, and and so often, you know, there are there are there are consequences to sin. That that you know that so the point here is not that that we just turn a blind eye to the realities of life. We're foolish and and stupid about. The the people's sin patterns and so forth. So, So we have to be wise and we have to seek their spiritual good, all right? Because love does not just ever turn a blind eye to patterns that need to change. But at the same time, it is never right to hold on to bitterness or to withhold Christian love because of how someone has hurt you. Christ demands that we extend the forgiveness that we have received. And I know that can be really difficult for some people. And so, I wouldn't be surprised if there's people in here that, that you have bitterness that has, that has stewed in your heart for decades towards a particular individual. And, and, and it's not just that, that they have lost trust, it's that you still have these sharp emotions towards that person. And you think, man, there's no way I could ever let go of that. Well, again, remember that verse 10 says that you can. You have put on the new man if you are in Christ. You can do it. So, so don't make excuses about why it's too hard. Trust the Lord that He gives the grace to do it and, and then pursue forgiveness. So in some, verses 12 and 13 command us to extend grace to each other. The Gospel demands that we extend to each other, and especially to those in our home, the same love and grace that we have received. So, so may God help us to live up to this standard. And then notice a third major truth in verse 14, and that is that we must put on love. So, so verse 14 says, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So, so notice first of all, uh, here in verse 14, the supremacy of love. And Paul says that above every other quality, put on love. Because, of course, love is the foundation of all healthy relationships. Now, of course, Jesus said in Matthew 22 that, that the whole law hangs on loving God and, and loving your neighbor. So, so, so love binds together everything the Scriptures teach about our relationships to other people. Now, I do think it's worth clarifying with what Jesus said in Matthew 22, that when he says that the whole law hangs on love, love for God and love for neighbor, he's not saying that if you feel love for someone, you can disregard all the other commands in the Bible. You know, no, rather the point is, is, is that the rest of the law is an expression of how I rightly and truly love God and love my neighbor. So so what does it mean to love your spouse? Does it mean that you always feel these intense passions towards them? And of course, you should pursue that. Passion is a good and and, and to some extent, I'd say a necessary part of a a really strong, vibrant marriage. But that's not fundamentally what love is. No, Loving your spouse means obeying verses 12 and 13, even when your spouse is difficult. And hard. It means extending the grace that you have received, even when that other person is a jerk or he lets you down. And of course, the same goes for every other relationship. Love means overlooking a harsh comment. I can't believe they said that. And instead saying, you know, looks like so-and-so is having a bad day. What can I do to make their day better? How can I pray for them? Your response shouldn't be, they gave it to me, I'm going to give it right back. It should be, how can I lighten the load? How can I be full of grace? And love is a stance of selfless humility that puts others ahead of myself. And then notice the effect of this love. He says at the end of verse 14 that love is the bond of perfection. Now, now I do need to say that there's some... Um, it's not abundantly clear exactly what Paul means here. There's a couple different ways uh, that phrase can be taken. So, so first of all, is Paul saying that love binds together the Christian virtues, or is he saying that love binds together God's people? And, and of course, both are ultimately true, right? That that love uh, does bind. You know, love. I mean, all the law is, is summed up in love, and and love binds together God's people. But I do think that that he is here primarily talking about the fact that love binds together the people of God. And I say that because the context here is very much concerned about unity in the church. Uh, verse 11 in particular talks about unity among various ethnic groups within the church context. And as well, a uh, chapter 2, verse 19 says, uh, uses the same verb to say that the church should be knit together through Christ. So so the point then is that love binds the church together. And of course, love should bind every other relationship together as well. If there is love in your home, there will be deep bonds. Even if there are problems, even if there are personality conflicts, there will still be deep bonds. And then notice that this kind of love leads to perfection. Or more specifically, uh, I would say maturity or completion. So the idea is, is that love creates a mature, complete unity. And of course, that's where you want your home to be. Your spouse and your other family members, they're never going to be perfect. You won't always see eye to eye. And the curse means that loving them is oftentimes going to require lots of sacrifice. But by the grace of God, you can extend the grace that you have received. And you can enjoy a deep bond that flows from a mature expression of love and grace. And that's where we want to get. We want to be bound together in, in a deep bond, a mature bond through love. So how we ought to pray that love would create deep, deep bonds in our marriages, our families, here in our church, and every other relationship. And, and, and with all this, folks, let's remember that we are the elect, holy, and beloved people of God. We have received tremendous love. And so by God's grace, let's live up to our calling. And let's be people of grace and compassion. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the challenge of this passage and Father, I recognize today that that what what Paul is saying here, what you are saying to us, is hard, incredibly hard, incredibly difficult. And and so Lord, I, I pray today uh, for maybe people who are who are who have endured tremendous pain in relationships, in marriage, other contexts, abusive parents, whatever it might be. That, Lord, today You would comfort and encourage their hearts. And, Father, I pray for all of us that, that Lord, we would see very clearly the love that we have received. Help us to glory in the mercy and kindness of our Savior. And, Father, I pray that You would give us grace to do what You have called us to do. Father, I pray that Your Spirit would, would show us where we fall short of the standard. That He would convict us over our sin, and that, Lord, we would not make excuses or hide behind a wall, but that, Lord, our hearts would be open before you and that you would convict us and challenge us. And God, I pray that you would continue to grow stronger and stronger relationships in our midst. I pray for our marriages that they would be strong and healthy. I pray for our families that they would be places of joy and rest because they're marked by love and grace. And Father, I pray the same for our church, that Life Point would always be a place of grace and compassion and mercy, uh, that we would love each other well in a way that glorifies you. So Lord, thank you for your word and to thank you for the challenge it gives. By your grace, help us to live it out. In Christ's name, amen.